0: Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Joe Armstrong. Today, we've got a lot going on. We have a guest up first to talk about a very important survey that she has going on. After that, Bradley's going to join me and we're going to grill him on some of the topics that we're talking about with this survey. Stick around for the second half. Make sure you look up this survey and take it z.umn.edu backslash matchmade survey. z.umn.edu backslash match made survey. Thanks, everybody. Let's get to it. Mm. Welcome to The Moose Room, everybody. Dr. Joe here. It's just me and a guest today. Um, This is part of a Larger episode where we're going to really grill Bradley about some details of this and his personal experience talking to farmers uh, in this area. But today we have Jane Jewett on today, who is the associate director of the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture. And that's a mouthful of the title, but I somehow managed to get it right. Before we get into the topic today, we always have two questions that we ask every guest and those are coming up now, Jane. Jane, you ready?
1: Yep, I'm ready.
0: Here we go what is your favorite breed of dairy cow
1: oh dairy cow you didn't tell me this was about dairy cows because I grew up with beef cows so okay favorite breed of dairy cows Guernseys
0: Guernseys all right hey that uh that changes the order around here I have to have to move my list around before I report on where we're at here all right that brings the total Holsteins are at 23. Unfortunately, on top, jerseys are at 14, which is the correct choice. Brown Swiss at eight, Montbilliard at three, Dutch belted at three, Guernsey's at three, Normandy at two, Milking Shorthorn at one, Ayrshire at one. And then we always give a special shout out to a Guernsey named Taffy. All right. So the question that is probably more fair for you is what is your favorite breed of beef cattle?
1: Yeah, that's also a hard one. I. You know, I love all the British breeds, but um, favorite favorite is Herefords.
0: Herefords, all right, Bradley will be super excited uh, because that is the correct choice for him. Uh, I've been waffling on my choice to be honest, and and we might have an update on that where I take my vote and put it somewhere else. But uh, for now, Black Angus are on top at fifteen. Herefords at eleven. Black Baldy at four, Scottish Highlander at four, Red Angus at three, Shorthorn at three, Belted Galloway at two, Charle at two, and then all with one stabilizer: Galvian Brahman, Keenina, Semiton, Allure, Jersey, Normandy, Belgian Blue, Brangus, Piedmontese, and White Park.
1: Okay, well, if I had known that crosses were an option, I would have said um, the Black Baldies. The Hereford Angus cross is definitely my Hereford Angus cross is definitely my very very favorite
0: perfect i will switch it back that'll very much disappoint bradley but he'll take you know half the vote everything the same except now Black these are at five creeping up and herfords are at 10. sorry bradley black gang is still on top at 15. now we've got the important stuff out of the way uh it's time to actually talk about why we invited jane to be here today the overall topic really is that there's barriers to the integration of livestock and, and crops. And so there's a survey that you guys are running right now so let, let's start there. can you can you tell us a little bit about the survey that you guys are conducting and then we'll get into where it came from and everything else later?
1: Yeah, our survey is um, covering six states and we are trying to get 3,000 farmers to respond total from the states of Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Missouri. And we are looking for farmers who raise crops only and farmers who um, currently raise both livestock and crops. Uh, And we're including forages and pasture as crops. So um, livestock farmers who graze or make hay are included in that crop plus livestock category. And then we are also asking farmers who raise only crops if they have ever had livestock in the past and if they have, what prompted them to get out of it. Uh, And then we are asking farmers who have never had livestock in the past what the reasons are for that. And then we also have a pathway through the survey for folks who may have livestock only with no crops, which sounds like it wouldn't be possible if we're counting pasture and forage as crops. But actually, there are a growing number of people who who have especially small ruminants like sheep or goats that they keep on very small acreage and rent out for brush control, invasive species control, that sort of thing. So they actually have livestock only and don't raise crops
0: we're going to talk a little bit more about the survey itself but before we do where did this start kind of give me the background on on why you're asking and trying to get so many farmers to respond where where did this idea come from who who's behind it all of those things
1: sure so uh, the other entity that i work with and for is greenlands blue waters it's actually housed within the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture in the university system. But Greenland's Blue Waters is a multi-state research and education consortium around um, promoting continuous living cover in agriculture and improving agricultural performance, both in terms of profitability for the farmer and environmental performance. Greenland's Blue Waters includes a working group called the Midwest Perennial Forage Working Group. Uh, it consists mainly of grazing educators across the states that I mentioned earlier. These are folks who work directly with farmers. Some of them are NRCS staff, grazing specialists. Some of them are extensions. Some of them are nonprofit staff who focus on grazing in their work. They all you know, have their boots on the ground regularly and see farms. And uh, we have some really great discussions about what's the best approach, what's the best way to get people interested in grazing. These are extremely pragmatic, non-ideological people. And one of the things that has come up in the conversations is that some of the more environmental organization uh, emphasis on grass-fed beef can be counterproductive when we're trying to increase the amount of um, of land in perennial forage because there are very few farmers who are actually prepared to convert all of their crop acres into perennial forage and establish a 100% rotational grazing um, system and just go you know all the way down that grass-fed road. So That has been a topic of conversation for a long time, that we need to look at pragmatic, practical ways to integrate more livestock that sort of meet farmers where they are and, you know, work with what they've got and what they know and try to introduce a few additional practices that can lead towards grazing and livestock integration without presenting it as this all or nothing, 100% grass fed or, or you're doomed type of thing. At a certain point, the conversations bubbled up to where they said, well, we should really get a grant and try to pursue this and figure out what the farmers really need from educators to be able to um, move livestock integration forward. Because a lot of the time, we're just kind of guessing, you know, what's going to work? What What sort of presentation is going to move people? What kinds of things are they going to view as useful? Maybe we should ask them.
0: I really appreciate how practical this is. And and I really, really like that this isn't something that's all or none, which is how it is, like you said, how it is presented in some cases when you look at some of the environmental groups or anything like that. It's that there is no in between that benefits both, and I think that's the thing we're missing: is that there is a there is a great in between um, where you can meld these two, and it does benefit both the environment and potentially uh, the operation, the cattle operation, the livestock operation itself, because of all the things that that go with that uh, in terms of cost reductions and and things like that. I, I think there's a there's a lot here that uh, needs to be talked about, and this compromise is definitely sitting there and, and waiting to happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not just benefit the livestock side, but also benefit the crop side because if you get livestock present on the land, then you have a manure resource, right? And in the grazing group, we really like to talk about manure as a resource and not a problem. So once you have manure present. In a place, you can apply that to cropland, whether it's the animals themselves applying it or, uh, you know, using equipment to apply it. But that manure resource truly is a resource to reduce fertilizer input costs, too.
0: We've talked about the survey. You kind of briefly touched on what the end goal is. But let's let's specifically talk about, okay. after you've got all these answers, what is the data going to be used for in the end?
1: When I say we've got a lot of questions, it is a it is a lot, but we've also structured it so that the survey flows pretty smoothly. And we've heard from farmers it takes them about fifteen minutes to take it, so it's definitely not the egg census. We tried really hard to make it not the egg census. So what we're hoping to be able to to use the results for is to really inform educators uh, because this. Perennial Forage Working Group is made of educators, and they really uh, look at, you know, what can we do that supports other grazing educators? The idea is to get some data behind what, what educators might do to craft their programs when they're working with farmers. So, you know, what are the areas that farmers particularly identify as barriers and can we specifically address those? And if there isn't a fix by education, if it needs to be policy or technology, then can we identify those things? When barriers are addressed, is that going to be a technology fix, an education fix, a policy fix, some combination of that? We'll also be looking at the experiences of people who are already integrating crops and livestock and looking at what they say about what's hard about it, what's challenging about it, what's really good about it, and trying to, you know, push that information out to educators across that six-state area and say, okay, here are the positives that you can emphasize, and um, here are the things that people say work well. Let's transmit that more broadly than it has been, perhaps. And um, here are the things that people who are doing it even successfully found really challenging when they were getting started. So that's what we're hoping is to have a pretty rich set of information that educators can use to hone their programs and hone their messages.
0: Well, I'm I'm biased, but I always appreciate work that helps me do my job uh, as an educator. It is nice to have it go into it with a tool set that's built and and ready to go and you know where you're going with it and the end goal and all of that as we talked about there's not really a better way to do that than to just ask the farmers what they need Uh, and that's exactly what this survey does is walks through what's happening in the industry right now what needs to happen going forward and gives the farmers a voice and how to have that happen going forward So I really appreciate the work you guys are doing with this. It's a a great opportunity for people to be heard on what needs to happen moving forward to make this uh, a reality. All right. I think we'll cut it there and we'll continue this conversation with Bradley and pick his brain a little bit more. We'll grill him instead of grilling Jane about all the details and uh, the logistics of getting cows places and things like that. Jane, I really appreciate you being on today. Uh, it's a really valuable time, and, a, and this is a, a great opportunity for farmers.
1: Oh, well, thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, and I would love to talk about cows and grazing all day long, if allowed. Thanks.
0: Well, welcome back to the Moose Room. I know you just finished hearing from me, and now we're on to a, a more important person, Bradley, <laughs> who's going to lead most of this discussion. We got an intro to this topic a little bit on the barriers of the integration of livestock and crops from jane and i think really what we're looking for and as promised we're going to grill bradley we're gonna we're gonna get down to his thoughts on the topic and stay as always on the applied practical side and let everyone else sort out all the the big details on the policy things later but we'll talk about our opinions and see what bradley has to say on the subject so brad i know you're you're kind of excited to talk about this but you You've talked about this a lot, so.
2: <laughs> well, it's it's an interesting topic, and there's always people, uh, you know, asking questions about integrating crops and livestock and how to do it, what seed you should plant, what kind of animals you can graze, you know, can you graze it? Can you harvest it for forage? I think there's just so many different options that. Maybe that's what causes a little bit of confusion with people is trying to figure out with you have all these options and you know maybe that which just leads to a little confusion on, on people's part about, oh man, this sounds complicated. And I don't think it has to be complicated at all. That, that, that's a good
0: point, Bradley. And I hadn't really thought about that, that I think each individual piece or each individual option isn't all that complicated, like you said, but when you have that many options, it certainly starts to sound that way. And anytime you throw around the buzzwords of cover crops, people get a little shy about, well, that sounds complicated, that process. But, but integration of, of livestock and crops, I, I don't think, like you said, it has to be that complicated. There's, there's a lot of things that, that can be simple about it. And I think people do tend to overcomplicate the issue.
2: And I'm more of the simplistic one and, you know, people ask me a lot of questions about it. You know, we talk about cover crops for cattle and what can we do? Well, I'm more, I wanna keep it simple to make it easy for the farmer. You know, we did a project in 2016 where we had two different kinds of cover crops. We had winter rye and winter wheat. So we planted them in the fall of uh, 2015 With our hopes of grazing them early in the spring of 2016, which we did. We started grazing them in April of 2016. We wanted to keep it simple. That's why we used winter rye and winter reed. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, well, you should put five mixes together or 12 mixes together because it helps with soil fertility and all of that, which is maybe fine. We're not sure what happens on a soil fertility basis if you mix 12 species together the problem is is that 12 species mixed all together that's pretty costly from a seed seed standpoint so you have to think about economics and it can be complicated when you got a lot of different species together and i you know we can debate whether you have one or five or twelve or whatever but i'm more of the simplistic one let's pick a species and keep with it That's why we do a lot of winter rye stuff.
0: It's easy. Any way you can just keep it as simple as possible is definitely worth it. You know, you mentioned some of this stuff you're talking about. You planted in the fall of 2015, knowing you're going to graze in the spring of 2016. And to me, that's a big barrier that I see is just having the ability to plan ahead. As we know, in farming, seasons sneak up on you real quick. And you, if you're not really looking ahead and several steps down the road, uh, you can get behind pretty quickly.
2: You know, if you're thinking about grazing, say winter rye, like we did in the spring, you have to plant that in mid August to give it some chance to grow in the fall. And uh, so you get a good jump in the spring. Well, if you're planting mid August, you probably wanna think about seeding, you know, mid July and you got to get seed and so you know eight months maybe nine months before you're actually going to harvest that for feed or graze that that you have to be thinking about planting this so I I agree that's maybe a barrier is sometimes we get stuck in a you know we don't want to think about nine months later but with this stuff you certainly do and that's when using the the winter cover crops you know if you're thinking about other different kind of cover crops. You know, there's fall grazing is a a, a different process, which if you wanna plant something for fall grazing, like we're thinking about that now at our research center. Okay, well, can we plant some oats and turnips for October grazing or early November grazing? Well, we're thinking about that now because we're gonna plant that here in, you know, third week of August or the end of August to hopefully get some uh growth that we can graze it in in mid-november so there's a little bit of thought process there maybe not as much as you do with the winters but you still want to be thinking about it a, a month or two beforehand so you don't sort of get caught and go oh man i i ran out of feed or i need to you know this pasture isn't working or we need to do something different so i know in farming nobody sometimes likes to think about a few months out but in in a lot of these situations you uh, certainly have to think about it uh, a few months beforehand
0: so one of the simplest forms of crop and livestock integration and probably one of the most common is grazing crop residues now i think that's pretty well understood especially in minnesota because we do it so often but one of the major barriers that I hear for that specific situation is fence. So it can still be the simplest scenario, but there's still a major barrier when it comes to fence. Fence is expensive.
2: Yeah. It's, you know, it, and it certainly depends on where you're gonna say, graze animals, if you're gonna do it in an existing pasture that you already have that has some sort of fence around it, it makes it a little bit easier. But sometimes you want to graze a different field, say a, a crop field or to sort of get a, a, a different process going. So that takes a little bit, you know, you have to have labor to put up the fence. Depends what type of animals you have, dairy heifers or dairy cows, maybe a little bit different than beef cows as far as fencing needs maybe maybe not sometimes we, we can argue a, one one wire works just as well and maybe a, a dairy animal needs two wires I you know <laughs> it, it all depends but yeah fencing is certainly an issue and you know we're we're kind of thinking about that now and kind of one of our examples it's like oh well let's try and graze this one field with some oats and turnips but well, we don't really have a we don't have a permanent fence around it. So what do we do? Well, maybe we go out there with some T posts and, you know, kind of make a fence or uh, that kind of works temporarily for us. And I all labor issues and I know that's that can be a problem uh, or a challenge on on farms with labor. So it's um fencing is a, a one one of those things that you have to consider.
0: This, this brings up the perfect opportunity to go on a little tangent. And, and because Brad's here and we're talking technology, we're talking fence, uh, set him up for, for being able to talk about some technology here. Virtual fence. We hear about it a lot. I have yet to see it in person, in practice. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of people using it or attempting to use it. But, but what do you know about that side of things, Brad?
2: You know it's kind of the new technology growing technology is is virtual fencing and you know a lot of it is you put a collar around an animal and have this boundary and they're not supposed to go outside of that boundary and you know i've seen it in in a few places on on a small scale you know not not large so I, you know it's always tough when you see new technologies will it work how expensive they are you know we we know that new technologies are really expensive so is it is is a virtual fence better than a permanent fence you know I, I i don't know we do not have virtual fence here i'd like to try it and see what happens so if anybody wants to work with me and we can figure this out certainly uh, we will i think that's one to watch in the future is virtual fencing i, th- I think it's gonna only improve uh, in the future i i think the verdict is still out there a lot of people are unsure you know it's one of those it's a fear factor you know can i put an animal on a piece of land with no fence around it and just hope that it stays in
0: yeah it makes me very 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 nervous i haven't been able to work with it so i'm hoping brad gets it as well so that we can we can learn about it together but i i mean personally anytime there's that kind of technology involved in any way i have a hard time trusting it as a perimeter fence right like if you want to use it as a cross, a cross fencing or to strip graze or whatever you want to do on that front, I'm much more comfortable with that. But as a, a without having an actual permanent perimeter fence, it makes me super nervous. Maybe that that those nerves are unfounded, but man, liability-wise it makes me very very nervous.
2: Yeah, I I you know I, I yeah, I, I just don't know enough about it yet to say whether it will work or not work or you know i i, I just i just don't know I, I don't really know it it'll be interesting to see how that works and there are a few places that i know of that are are um you know trying it uh, in in beef cows i'm not quite sure any places that are doing it with dairy but it would be interesting and i'm certainly interested in doing that and trying to figure that out
0: all right well on this episode, we covered a lot. Uh, we heard about the survey that's going on so we can get information from farmers that are either doing these practices now, have done them in the past, or considering them in the future. We wanna hear from you, so please make sure to go to z.umn.edu backslash matchmade survey. Take that survey, it takes about 15 minutes. We wanna hear from you on that. Any final thoughts, Brad?
2: You know, I think just keep it simple. That's one thing that we have to think about is, it is not difficult for integrating crops and livestock if we just keep it simple. That's, that's my word of advice.
0: With that, if you have comments, questions, scathing, rebuttals, those go to the moosroom at umn.edu, that's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Check us out on Twitter at umnmoosroom and at UMN Farm safety. Check Bradley out on Instagram at U-M-N-W-C-R-O-C-Dairy. We'll call it there for plugs. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. I'm just here to remind you that it's really important you go take that survey about how we can better educate people on crop and livestock integration. Really appreciate you doing that. Go to z.umn.edu backslash survey. Z.umn Dot edu backslash match made survey. Thanks, everybody.